I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about U.S.-China policy, we've got our very own CSIS's Dr. Mike Green. Mike, I want to ask you about the new survey that you've done on China. You used data and polling data to understand attitudes towards China, U.S. attitudes towards China, European, Asian attitudes, and really the study is called Mapping the Future of U.S.-China Policy. Why did you take the approach of polling and who did you poll to come to the conclusions? We'll talk about the conclusions and your survey findings in a minute, but why did you take the approach of using survey data to begin with? Thanks, Andrew. And it's the right question. We had an opportunity to launch one of the first of our new strategic initiative funds, a pot of money from the Board of Trustees to do big, big problems facing the U.S. and to draw on different parts of CSIS and use new methods. And so I was asked, uh, together with our China experts, Jude Blanchett, Bonnie Glazer, Scott Kennedy, and others, a big strategic look at what we do about China. We're obviously in a new era of strategic competition with China. The Trump administration has been tough on virtually every issue in the bilateral relationship, and the Democrats aren't backing down either. But, you know, being tough is not a strategy. So we talked about how we would do something that would be enduring. You know, a a strategy should have legs. It should last. It shouldn't just go on the shelf. And we had done survey work before to support our research on Asia. We had surveyed thought leaders, what we call strategic elites, think tankers, former officials, uh, leading journalists, business leaders uh, across Asia. And so we decided if we're going to have a set of recommendations, we need to map. We're a democracy. What are the contours of the American people's thinking on China? What are their expectations? And what about those who are most engaged on China, but not just in our sphere, in agriculture and educational exchange, business and technology? So we designed a set of three surveys that would let us start to map the contours of where the American people, leaders in different sectors are, but also key allies and partners, because we can't have a China strategy that's going to work if we don't have key countries in Europe and Asia working with us. China's just too big for us now to handle alone. So that's what we started with. We had a public opinion survey with a thousand responses we used that were controlled plus minus 3% margin of error. And, you know, like any good public opinion survey control for demographics, for uh, political affiliation and so forth. And then we did a survey after we talked to 12 major national organizations like the Chamber of Commerce, National Endowment for Democracy and so forth. And they helped us identify leaders in their spheres, in business, in Congress, in civil society, uh, religious organizations, labor, national security experts. And then we had our own list we'd already done for Asia and Europe. So we got these three surveys. In this day and age, think tanks have got to use data. We draw on our experience and our knowledge of history and our time in government, but we got to show it. With AMTI, we show it with overhead imagery. And with this, we wanted to show some data to sort of, to make the case that some of our recommendations are going to have buy-in from the American people, from our allies, from key stakeholders. So it doesn't tell you exactly what you should do about China, but it kind of gives you the landscape so you can make decisions that are going to stick 
and being a drink strategy. Right. So you talk to quote unquote thought leaders in the U.S., Asia and Europe on the future of policy towards China. You know, members of the press have asked me, people who have consumed the survey have asked me, how do you define thought leaders? Like you just started talking about that a little bit about how the chamber referred you to people. But what is a thought leader in terms of this survey? So, you know, in the survey, we wanted to ask very specific questions about hard choices we have with China. Should we defend Taiwan? Should we block Huawei and and Chinese tech companies from 5G markets? Should we use sanctions for human rights? There have been great surveys. Pew just had a great survey on attitudes around the world on China. Chicago Council on Global Affairs, I consume their work. It's great. But they don't ask policy questions. And we wanted to go a level deeper. So one of the surveys was a public opinion survey. And with the public, you can only go so deep on some of these questions. But you can also get a quantitative result. You can get a scientifically controlled data sample because you can control in a public opinion survey for the things I mentioned, demographics, political affiliation. But you can't go as deep on the questions because these are not people who are thinking about trade policy or human rights every day. So the other two surveys were not quantitative. I guess I would call them qualitative surveys. We couldn't control who answered it because we were asking people who knew a lot about the subject. And so we had to get people who knew about it. So we couldn't say like, we're going to have X number of people in this political affiliation or that demographic quotient. We just had to ask people who knew about the subject. So we went to, as I said, 12 different organizations, national organizations, Loose Foundation for Civil Society working on Asia, Smith Richardson Foundation for National Security Experts, uh, Chamber of Commerce and several other business and high tech and financial industry associations. And we said, who in your world should we be asking? about these China questions. And they gave us a list. And the only rule we had was it couldn't be someone in a current elected office, and it couldn't be a currently serving government official or national security official, and it couldn't be someone at CSIS. So this is a mix of people in industry, journalism, academia, and so forth. And uh, overseas, we went to our counterparts across the political spectrum. You know, in Australia, we had a lot of people from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the Lowy Institute. So overseas, it tended to be think tank and university people, and to some extent, industry associations. We just had made our own list for overseas. And we had about 400 some from the US who responded, and about 450 or so overseas, which is a pretty good number, but it is qualitative. There's no margin of error. You can't say we have perfectly controlled sample size to be sure that it's demographically balanced and so forth. Because when you're asking experts, it's very, very hard to do that. What do you think the real benefit of asking experts is versus asking the public? I mean, to some, it may be really obvious, but but to you, what does that mean? Well, for example, we ask the public uh, somewhat broader questions like, how much risk should the United States take to defend allies like Japan or Korea against Chinese threats or Taiwan? And they could answer that. I mean, and, they, and the answer, by the way, was pretty robust. But we could ask the experts, what should we do about it? Mm-hmm. Should we be focusing on cyber? Should we be focusing on forward deployed air and naval assets? And that was valuable because we could get several levels more of granularity on the what you do about a part. And we could compare. And we could say, look, here's what people think about defending Taiwan. Here's what people in agriculture think. Here's what people in the human rights community think. Here's what university presidents think. And one of the most fascinating thing was among these thought leaders in labor, in agriculture, in national security, remarkable consistency on these tough questions. You know, historically, China policy in this country has been a fight. You've got business community defending the relationship with China. You've got the human rights community wanting to pressure them 
cut off trade if necessary. And then you have the national security community, which is divided between those who think we have to cooperate with China and North Korea and other issues, and those who think we need to be defending our allies. What was really interesting about the thought leader survey was the answers were pretty consistent across these different groups and pretty tough when it comes to pressuring China on human rights and defending allies. And I think it kind of shows that today, the China debate is no longer a debate between different constituencies. There's general agreement that China's a problem. And that's a big change. And it explains why there's bipartisanship around China policy in Congress right now, behind the scenes. The politics are rough, but when you actually talk about choices, it's hard to tell who's a Republican and Democrat. We have a problem and everyone knows it. Fascinating. So let's get into some of the results of the survey. What really stood out to you? Well, the first thing that stood out, as I mentioned, was how much convergence. I don't want to give you the impression there's complete consensus, but there was more convergence than not around really key questions about how much risk we should take to defend allies, how much we should be pressuring on human rights, and even how much we should be decoupling economically from China. You know, consistent with Pew and other polling, the American public really doesn't trust China. 54% of Americans in our public opinion poll said China is the biggest threat to us overseas. And Russia was second at 22%, far behind. So it's a distant second. Distant second. So the American people see China as our biggest external threat. And look, the Trump campaign knows that. The, the Biden campaign knows that. The number one foreign policy issue they talk about is China. Right. They're trying to show voters who's tougher on China in most cases. That's right. And in the public opinion polls, there is some divergence based on whether people are Republicans or Democrats. There is some divergence. But among thought leaders who we know are both Republicans and Democrats and also independents, very broad consensus. For example, among thought leaders, 81% in the US and 74% of our allies and partners said the best way to deal with the challenge China poses is by working together with the US, the US and US allies and partners. Only 4% of American thought leaders said we should cut a deal with China. And 81% said that's not going to happen. Basically, we're going to have to prioritize cooperating with allies and partners to get China to change its behavior. So only 4% of American thought leaders thought we should cut a deal. Yep. 4% said prioritize cooperation with China to solve these problems, even if it hurts allies and partners. Only 4%. Chicago Council asked that question of the public in 2012, and most people said cut a deal with China. And that was public. This is thought leaders. And that was then. This is now also. I mean, 2012 to now is a different time because, I mean, there's a growing sentiment that we really have an adversarial relationship with China. That's right. Right. I mean, publicly and in our thought leaders. But did it surprise you that our thought leaders didn't think that there was a solution to come to together? So among the think tank national security community that you and I know well, I expected this result. What was interesting was that's also what business leaders said and leaders in finance and technology. Only 4% across the board said that we could get a deal with China to solve problems. In another question, we asked whether we should try to get China to move towards a market economy, if that was the purpose of our policy. And similarly, only a single digits said that that was the point. So the idea that we are converging with China, that we should be working with China at the expense of our allies, that there's a grand bargain, you know, the classic Nixon-Kissinger approach to China, that is dead dead as a log in the survey. People overwhelmingly think 81% of the thought leaders, a plurality, a large plurality of the public said, work the problem with our allies and partners. 74% of our allies and partners said that. If you take out Southeast Asia, which is a little more neutral in the US-China conflict, if you include Western Europe, Japan, Korea, Australia, overwhelmingly, 
the view in those countries among foreign policy thinkers was we have to work with the Americans. So that's an important takeaway because what it says is the devil's in the details, to be sure, but there is a convergence on the China problem in the world. China is uniting us, not dividing us, at least among the major democracies in the world. And that's an opportunity we are not taking advantage of. So I want to get into some of these other findings, but for you, that's got to be the real takeaway from this. It means we need to plurilateralize, multilateralize our approach to China. The trick is that when we start getting into specific issues, what should we do about 5G, what should we do about trade, what should we do about technology, there's a lot of convergence, but there are big differences. And so a lot of this is going to be kind of coalitions around issues. So I could imagine, for example, a pretty broad coalition with Western Europe, Japan, uh, Korea, uh, Australia, all of which ranked human rights as a very high priority. And respondents said they were willing to take considerable risk to themselves to advance human rights. That's not where their governments are. In a way, the advantage of the thought leaders is they can say things governments can't say out loud. So there, I could see a fairly broad coalition to coordinate on how we approach Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet. On other issues like technology, which we can talk about more, which we asked a lot about, there was very broad consensus that countries should block Huawei. All the advanced industrial economies, the respondents said, we don't want them. But when it comes to issues of export controls, you know, we have a very strict entities list where we don't allow the export of components to Huawei, much more division. So on something like that, you probably need a coalition that looks more like Japan, Korea, Australia, Taiwan, Europe, it'd be harder. It'd be harder to get a US-Europe agreement on data and digital issues and technology. So this is not a NATO. The conclusion is not we have Team USA to deal with China. It's issue specific. The coalitions change. It's going to take retail diplomacy and a lot of persistent groundwork. But the coalitions are out there. So you, you make policy recommendations in this report, and I want to get to those in a second. But with this specific thing, I think we need to talk about it right now. What does this information tell you? How does it inform policy recommendations that you're going to make? So it doesn't tell you what the government of Japan or the government of France will do on something like human rights necessarily. But it does show that, you know, 50 some Japanese thought leaders who we know are influential in the public space and a slightly smaller number of French public intellectuals who are influential are saying, emphasize human rights. We asked on a scale of one to 10, how much risk should we take in the US or in France or in Japan to advance human rights? And we specifically asked about separate categories, Xinjiang and Tibet, Hong Kong, and dissidents within China. And the French and Japanese respondents had a higher response than the Americans. The Americans were high, including the business community. The mean was, I think, close to seven but it was even higher in France and Japan. So what it tells you is there's support in those foreign policy communities that may not be in the government yet, but you should push it. So that's the kind of way you can use this data to look for targets of opportunity. You may find that the government's not ready to do it, but it's worth trying. Similarly on 5G, when over two thirds of respondents in the advanced industrial democracies everywhere, basically except Italy, said ban Huawei, you have evidence to suggest you can build a very effective clean network. I mean, the administration is talking about a clean network, but nobody knows quite what it is. But if we start, and we talk about this in our recommendations, working on a telecommunications coalition to build an alternative to Huawei, there's a lot of support for that among public intellectuals, foreign policy experts in those countries. So it doesn't give you the talking points for your first meeting 
to do that, but it does map out the terrain politically and suggest targets of opportunity. Let's talk about Huawei for a second. Your survey showed that more than two-thirds of thought leaders in the U.S., Asia, and Europe support banning Huawei and other Chinese firms from their 5G markets. But there's also some interest in continuing trade and telecom components. So what did that tell you? So it says a lot about the current U.S. policy. The current U.S. policy, like Japan, like Australia, like uh, some other countries, is to not give licenses to Huawei, ZTE, other companies that are engaging in monopolistic behavior and are, under Chinese law, closely tied to the Chinese Communist Party. And what it tells you is there's broader support for that in places like France and Germany and India, where they're still, the governments are still debating what to do. And so the U.S. is going to get support, I think, if we play this. But at the same time, the administration here has a very strict and somewhat capricious entities list of 100 Chinese companies you cannot export components to, to try to strangle them developing 5G. And the U.S. tech industry associations have said, we can live with some export controls, but this is killing us. This is too much too soon. Well, this shows us that in Japan, in Korea, in Taiwan, in the other countries where they have these high-tech components, they feel the same way as our industry. They accept that we have to have some export controls, but only about 30% or so in these countries want the kind of strict controls we have now. So we need to be less unilateral. We need to be pushing the envelope, but building coalitions. And right now, our approach on Huawei is a bit too unilateral. We're imposing these export controls on our companies and our allies in ways that are damaging the supply chains that is making it harder to build the consensus we need for a Huawei-free, Chinese-free 5G system. The, the one issue is getting in the way of the other issue. We need to calibrate, I think, because getting the five, six, seven high-tech countries aligned on this gives us enormous leverage vis-a-vis China. And right now we're fighting over some of these tactics. Let's go to another survey point. This one really stood out to me. 84% of thought leaders surveyed in Asia and Europe think that the United States would prevail in an armed conflict with China in the Western Pacific today, though only 56% think the United States would prevail 10 years from now. What did that make you think about? And what did that tell you in terms of policy recommendations? Well, it also tracks with what U.S. national security experts said. They also saw us prevailing today, but in 10 years, 50-50, close call. And what it tells us is that we have to keep investing in deterrence. And the Congress knows that. The National Defense Authorization Act has an Indo-Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which steps up our capability building in the Western Pacific. But the appropriations haven't happened. We're not paying for it yet. So we've got to pay for it. We have to invest. We asked what areas and cyber capabilities came in high among experts, air and naval capabilities in the Western Pacific. Nobody in our survey was voting for retreating and trying to defend Japan and Korea from, you know, Elmsworth Air Force Base. And a very high emphasis on modernizing our command and control. We have bilateral alliances in Asia, and they're not connected with each other. And if we had a real crisis with China, who would be in command in these different countries is not entirely clear. We'd have to be putting this together on the run. People know that. So we need to upgrade our command and control relationships. We need to network our alliances. We also need allies to do more. So declining confidence 10 years out is based on the fact that the PLA is outspending everybody. I mean, Japan has the largest Navy in Asia after us, larger than the Royal Navy. The Chinese are putting out as many ships every eight to 10 years. So we have a numbers problem. 
but we can offset that with new technologies, with command and control. So if we do some of those things in three years, we'll get a more confident result, but the trend lines are not good. And I think that's a really important lesson for the incoming administration, because these are allies and partners who count on us, seeing our ability to defend them degrading. They have very high confidence, by the way. We asked, should the U.S. defend these allies and partners? How much risk should we take? The mean from one to 10, with 10 being a significant risk, is eight or nine in almost every case. So the American people, that's thought leaders in all categories say, we got to defend our allies. So I think the case can be made for investing in the resources to do that. And that's the takeaway. Mike, finally, I want to ask you, you asked in the survey about attitudes in Asia and Europe about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. What did the survey results tell you? What's really interesting, we had 400 some leading thinkers. These are you know, people who publish regularly on the op-ed pages of their home newspapers, who advise their governments. So it's significant that 61% across the board among these thought leaders overseas thought Joe Biden would be better for China policy. And President Trump only got 18%. This isn't totally surprising, but not a single European thought leader said Trump would be better. And, you know, to Democratic and Republican foreign policy experts, that's not totally surprising. You know, President Trump's been pretty rough on allies, especially European allies. And if there's a second Trump administration, they ought to look hard at that. Because the opportunities I talked about to build coalitions, especially with Europe, are not there. They're not using them. We're fighting with Europe. And so if there's a Trump too, they need to really look hard at the transatlantic relationship in the context of China. Europe invests more in Southeast Asia than we do. And we're competing with China for influence in Southeast Asia, for example. So huge problem if there's a Trump too, that the Europeans just don't think he's any good on China. But for Biden, there are some lessons too. You know, with our big allies like Japan and Australia and Korea, Biden, you know, does two to one better than, than Trump. However, in two countries, Trump did better, Vietnam and India. Neither one's a treaty ally, but they're pretty important partners in dealing with China, and they're on the front lines. I mean, who's had their people killed by the PLA in the last few years? Right. It's India and Vietnam. And if the countries in the front line who are under the most pressure think Donald Trump would be better for them, it tells you something. And I think if I were in the Biden campaign, which I'm not, I'd look at that and think, you know, this is great. Uh, all the big democracies clearly want to work with Joe Biden on China, but when the going gets tough, is he going to be tough? There's clearly some question about that among thought leaders in the countries that are in the toughest situations, Vietnam and India. So, you know, I'm not advising the Biden campaign, but for where I'd say, you know, get in a little reassurance that if the going gets tough with China, the Biden administration is going to be really tough. And not just on trade, but on security. You and I both know a lot of the people around the Biden campaign who are working on foreign policy, and they're tough. And I think this reflects the governments probably in India and Vietnam as well. Taiwan was very close between the two as well. You know, in our survey among foreign policy thought leaders, Taiwanese gave Joe Biden a slight edge. So, you know, some of this is memories of the Obama and Clinton administrations and a feeling that sometimes the Democrats try a little too hard to get along with China. And sometimes we think we're going to get thrown under the bus. I think the debate in Washington has changed. That comes through in our survey. But I think it's a good thing for the Biden team to think about how do we show that? How do we how do we message that? So lessons for both sides, but a lot more work to do for Trump if he wins. Mike, this is a fascinating study. You can read all the survey results at chinasurvey.csis.org. It's our microsite that houses all the data, all the policy recommendations. It's got great visual interactive graphics. Mike, thank you very much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about mapping the future of U.S.-China policy. Thank you, Andrew. Great pleasure. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 